Friends, would you please pray with me, and we will study the word together. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us decide this morning if our spirits are really willing to do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. So did you get to hear the story this week about Jeffrey Holtz? It was in the Bradenton Herald. Jeffrey is eight years old. He lives right here in Bradenton. Being eight, he is currently unemployed, and he depends on the grace of his parents and possibly an allowance for uh, his ability to provide for himself. Jeffrey has been saving for quite some time, and he has amassed an enormous amount of $100, with which he had plans to go and buy a brand new set of Legos. Legos, in case you do not know, are just about as expensive as a college tuition. And speaking of college tuition, enter in Richard Gallup. Richard is a senior at Jeffrey's school. Jeffrey's a second grader. Richard is a senior. They don't know each other at all. Richard was recently diagnosed with cancer. And the entire school decided to collect funds to help pay for the treatment expenses. Thus, eight-year-old Jeffrey decided to take his $100 and give it to Richard. The article in the paper revealed that Jeffrey wanted to do this. His parents were not involved in the decision. His teacher was very surprised because that's not really typical behavior for a second-grade boy. But when asked about it, Jeffrey said, yeah, it's, it's no big deal. He's fighting cancer, and that's more important than a Lego set. I'll just start saving again. Now, you and I, we're adults, and we know that $100 is the tiniest, tiniest of drops in the bucket of what the medical expenses are for, for treating cancer. And so then we know that that's not really the heart of the story. The heart of the story is, is not the amount, but the spirit of giving that went into it. Jeffrey made a choice, and he was excited about this choice. He wanted to make it, and he didn't do it under guilt or compulsion from anybody. The fact that he's eight years old is what makes this story truly remarkable. The Apostle Paul is telling a very similar story in his second letter to the people at Corinth. It is a true story about the Macedonians, the Macedonians who compared to the Corinthians, the ones getting the letter, the, the Macedonians would have been eight-year-olds in a world filled with adults. They were not people of extravagant means. In fact, Paul says that they were actually people of extreme poverty in a time of severe affliction. But he went on to write that out of their extreme poverty overflowed a wealth of generosity. Now, it's intriguing to me that Paul didn't mention any numbers. He, he didn't cite exactly how much money we're talking about, um, but we do know that he was speaking directly about the gift of money. He wasn't talking about time or talent. This was a straight-up money conversation. And I wonder if, if he didn't mention the amount because we're talking about very, very poor people. And if he had specifically said what they had given, say that they gave the equivalent of $100, 
that the Corinthians might have potentially had two different reactions. The first reaction might have been $100. $100, so what? What's, what's $100? The second reaction, which I think would have been even worse, could have been $100. That's all it takes to be generous? Really? I could do $100 because I spent $100 at the coffee shop last week. That's the worst of the two possible reactions. So Paul didn't mention the amount because much like the story of Jeffrey, the amount isn't the point. The point is the spirit in which they gave. Paul said it this way, for if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So obviously you can't give what you don't have. Jeffrey didn't give Richard $10,000 because he's eight years old and he didn't have $10,000. He only had $100. But he gave it willingly. He gave it willingly from a place of love and it's going to make a difference in Richard's life. Jeffrey will forever be a part of Richard's life, not because of the amount that he gave, but because at eight years old, he gave all that he had. The amount is such a secondary issue that it's a detail that's likely going to fade over a period of time, but not the heart behind it. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, just in case you were not aware, and I would remind you it is not a religious holiday, so thank you to all of you that, that came out. Many, many years ago, when I actually cared about football, there was only one team, only one team that I detested even more than the New England, New England Patriots and the Dallas Cowboys, right? The Dallas Cowboys, the Patriots, two of the most hated teams of football, but there was a team that I hated more, and that team was the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes! Which, <laughs> all right, Sonia. Um, and... And that was unfortunate that I hated them so much because we lived in Philadelphia at the time. But so ardent was my disdain for the Eagles that with Ernest, at the beginning of the football season, I would plan out an entire season's worth of worship, taking into account the one o'clock starting games for the, the Philadelphia Eagles. And so when I would plan out those Sundays, I went out of my way with great effort and dare I say joy to plan out the longest prayers, the slowest hymns, the most lengthy affirmations of faith that had ever been written. And I pursued this effort with a great, unwavering, undying passion. Now, Paul, Paul being a far better saint than I, was trying to encourage the Corinthians to use their eagerness and their energy and their passion for good, not for evil, as I had done. And he used the best example of eagerness of the heart possible. He talked about Christ. Christ, who though he was rich, yet he, for our sakes, became poor, so that by his poverty then, we could all become rich. Jesus gave us something. Jesus gave us something that only Jesus could give. He gave up his life for us, and he did it willingly, not from a place of guilt, or with the bitterness of the heart. And the reason that we know that he did it willingly is that there's this moment in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is standing in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is praying to God and he knows that his time is at hand and he's holding on to the weight of the world and he says to God, 
If it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so willingly, willingly, Jesus went to the cross to take on a humiliating and painful death. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Consider that place of wealth from which Jesus came. All of creation was his. Everything in the world was at his disposal. All that had been, that was, that will come was all his. And he set it aside. Every bit of it to be born into a world as a human of extraordinary poverty and oppression. And he did it willingly, and he did it with eagerness. But why? Why such extravagant generosity? He did it because of you. You. He thought about you. You're the one that drove that generosity because he loves you. Because he looks at you and he decided to give you all of the riches in the world. That's how much you're worth to him. He didn't think twice about it. He didn't check in with his bank account. He didn't explore where else he might give generosity to. He just looked at you and me and he said, yes, 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 yes. Jesus gave what only Jesus could give. And he is our model for being generous and for having a generous life. We're all called to give what we can give. Let me say that again. We are called to give only what we can give, which means that each one of us has been given something, something that we are in a position to give away generously to others. I don't have the same amount of money in my bank account as anyone else in this room. There's some of you, I may have more. But more likely, given the Lego expenses of our family, there is less in my bank account than most of yours. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because God's not asking me to take a look at your bank account and give generously. God's not asking me to take a look at your bank account and decide what's coming out of my bank account comparatively. We could all be generous if we gave away each other's money, right? So much easier to give away somebody else's money. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to give according to what we have and not according to what we don't have. So it's not the amount per se, it is the spirit. And so then we have to have a conversation about how willing is the spirit. Jeffrey gave $100 with joy, compassion, and eagerness. It was all that he had. Now, if Bill Gates came along, he, Bill Gates comes along, and he gives $10,000 to Richard, but he does it out of guilt, he does it with a bitterness of heart, which one of the two is more generous. Well, Jeffrey gave with all eagerness as opposed to just giving a fraction with contempt. No amount of money in the world can buy you a truly generous spirit. A few years back, there was a member of our church and she was forced to move out of her house when her home was foreclosed upon. And it could not have come at a worse time. She'd already had a really terrible year. She'd experienced some pretty big losses. And so she moved into a small apartment. 
and she decided to make the best of it, and she never asked anything of the church. Never came, never asked for anything. Well, then one day, a couple years later, she asked if she could come see me in the office. And um, when she got there, she handed me a card, and inside the card was a check. And it was for a pretty significant amount of money, especially for somebody who had lost everything. And I was pretty speechless. And she explained that, that she'd always given what she could, but she just didn't have that much. And she'd had this very fortunate circumstance in her life. And, and she was able to give more. And the first thing that she wanted to do was to give it to the church. And you could tell, you could tell that it wasn't the amount that had her so excited. It was the eagerness to be able to give something to a church that had given so much to her. And remember what I said, she never came to us in her time of trial and asked for help. This wasn't a payback for a loan. This was a gift that she was giving, and she was so excited, she was shaking. She was shaking. I don't remember. I don't remember if the gift was for $5 or for $5 million. It doesn't make any difference. The memory of her walking into my office, tears running down her cheeks, shaking, so excited to be able to give this church something, that is forever burned into my brain. When I think about our church, I'm struck by a couple of things. I'm struck by our energy. We have a ton of energy for a church and our profound enthusiasm for wanting to do stuff and wanting to do it together. We're a church that likes each other, and we genuinely want to be around each other. So whether that's in the living room here of the well or the intimacy of the chapel or the greeting at the traditional service, it is so obvious that there is a joy about being together. And then I think, then I think that where we're a little different than a lot of churches is that we just keep making room at the table. We just keep finding ways. When we get that call asking, can I, can I bring my Catholic friend to the New Testament class? Well, the answer is yes. When at the last second we get that phone call, hey, can I bring my neighbors to the hometown potluck dinner? The answer is always yes. Is there space on the couches for another young family? And here's the answer. The answer is always yes. And here's how I know. Because I've seen the young families of our church when a new young family comes in and they've got the kids and they're looking around, they're trying to find a place to sit, I have seen our own young families get down off the couches and sit on the floor to make space for new families so that when they come into this place, they are just as welcomed as our original folks were. The spirit for welcome in this place is always willing. And it doesn't matter how many mission opportunities Carolyn schedules, there are always people who want to serve and to do more. The spirit for mission in this place is always willing. We have a vision for the church, and we live into it every single day. So that brings me to the very last section of what's included in this part of Paul's letter this morning. Paul writes, It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something now. Finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. Paul's writing to a fairly content group of people. They like each other. They get along. They're doing their thing. It's going fine. 
These are not like the Macedonians who are in severe poverty. They are a group that has benefited greatly from Paul's ministry. They are excited to hear about all the things that is, hap- that is happening for him. But there's a problem. And the problem is that all of that excitement and all of that enthusiasm and all of that energy has not manifested itself in giving. It hasn't. And that's the exact challenge for our church, this church, this place that we're facing today. You might not know this, but our church, we are right at a pinnacle moment. We've got some big decisions to make about what life is going to look like going forward. We're at that really crucial size where we get to decide, is this it? Is this as good as it's going to get? Or are we going to really, really go for it? Today, you may also may not be aware of this, today marks my start of the eighth year of ministry here in this church. And yeah, that's exciting, right? Um, and that's, that's an exciting, exciting thing. But if you were here eight years ago, you would know that in the last eight years, we have completely revitalized, revisioned, and brought this church back to a place of health and growth. And that's a really exciting thing. Our church went from a median age of 80 when I arrived. We are now down to 55. That's a great thing. In the early years here, it would be normal for me to officiate anywhere between 15 to 20 funerals a year. Last year, I officiated three. When our family first moved here, there weren't enough kids for us to have a Christmas pageant. This Christmas, you saw the Christmas pageant, you know that we could have gone three deep on every one of the characters. We have gone from no summer camp to four summer camps. We opened up multiple sections of the New Testament class because the demand for education is there, and it's still not enough. We've gone from two traditional services to three unique and distinct services. We are a church that at one point was known for sending checks from a distance. Now we are known as a church that sends people on a mission in person. And the thing that I love most above all else is that we are a church that looks for and attracts the de-churched, the unchurched, and the anti-church. So you know what that means? What that means is we're really good. We're really good about introducing people to Christ and helping them to see why he makes such a difference in our lives. And the only thing, the only thing that hasn't really changed in eight years is our giving. It's the only thing that hasn't changed. It's pretty much flat. And I have to tell you that as your pastor... I bear some responsibility for that. And one of the reasons that I bear responsibility for that is because I don't like to talk about money. It's, it's uncomfortable. And so what I did instead was that I kept asking our staff to do more and more and more with less and less and less. And because I was afraid that, that you wouldn't want to talk about money, that, that you would be upset if we talked about money, one of the things that happened was we couldn't keep a quality staff member like Pastor Reed because we couldn't afford to pay him a living wage. Because I didn't want, to feel, I didn't want you to feel pressured or uncomfortable. I've pushed myself and my family into places of extreme stress and pressure to make it possible 
for things to keep going. But we can't do that anymore. We can't do that anymore, so I'm just going to level with you. Our church gets to make a choice. In the next couple of years, we're going to have 6,000 single-family homes built one mile from our church property. I can't afford for us not to talk about the future anymore. Now that we have a growing and the potential for a rapidly growing children's ministry, we can't ignore giving anymore. Now that the baby boomers are moving down here in tsunami proportions, they're coming down here and guess what? They want to get plugged in. They want to get plugged in right away. They want to be able to serve. They want to be sent out. They want to do things. They want to do it right away. So we can't have this conversation in eight years. I, I, can't, I can't do that. We've got to have it now. So if our church is going to take that next step forward and really, really grow, not just do what we've been doing, but really, really grow, then every single one of us is going to have to step up to Paul's advice where he says it is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something or to desire to do something, but to actually get on with it. Get on with it and do it. Stop talking about it. Stop talking about how great it is, how much fun it is, how wonderful things are going. That's wonderful. Those are, those are great words. They're encouraging words. But you got to give. You got to give to back up those words. And you get to give according to your means. So I want to be clear about this. I'm not asking anyone. I'm not asking a single person to give more than you have. But for the first time in eight years of my ministry in this church, I am going to ask you outright, directly, face to face, to give generously. To give generously financially of what you already have to this ministry to these people, to what we do in this place. Because all of us, every single one of us, has benefited from it. We got it started, we've kept it going, but if we want to grow, then every one of us has to give something. So here's what I'm asking you, church. What I'm asking you is, is your spirit really willing is your spirit really willing? Because often what we'll say, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's, that's an excuse. The heart check question is, is your spirit really, really willing? Are we content enough with where we've been that we don't have to have this conversation anymore and we'll just let it go? Or are we going to do it? Are we going to go face to face Check that spirit and decide to go forward. If so, if the spirit is really willing, then I'm going to ask you to give with me. Give with me so that we can grow. Let's pray together. Holy God, we, we confess we don't like talking about money. We don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. It makes us nervous. But yet, at the end of the day, it's really a spiritual conversation that we need to have. It's really a discussion of the heart, of what we value, what's important to us, where we want to see our investments grow. And so I pray that your spirit would come upon each person in this room, that you would empower them to give generously of what they have, not of what they don't have, that they would see the value of all that happens in this place and give generously. 
Lord, as we come to the table, remind us that you are our model for giving. You gave of yourself, you gave of your life, you gave of your body and your blood that your people would have all. In that model and spirit of generosity, Lord, we come to the table. In your name we pray. Amen.